Welcome to episode 206 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. I'm too busy to read. Ever said that to yourself? That is a common refrain and a belief that is hard to overcome if all you're looking at is your full schedule week after week. My wife felt the same way until late last year when she decided to try out audiobooks in her runs instead of music. At first, her excuse was she'd run slower without the upbeat tempo to keep her going, but she's not running a race each time, so she let that excuse go. Then she discovered the excitement of a good audiobook and started craving little bits of time when she could get to the next chapter. And most importantly, she started to keep a list of the books she was reading. In Q3 of 2019, she listened to five books. In Q4, she listened to seven books. In one of those books, Finish by John Acuff, she learned that perfectionism screams failure and hides progress. A little data can make a big difference. It helps you see through perfectionism's claim that you are not getting anywhere. Emotion can give us a false impression of how far we have come. Data doesn't lie. John Acuff says, that's all data is, a gift from yesterday that you receive today to make tomorrow better. For 2020, my wife set a goal of listening to 50 books. She just met that goal and it's only the beginning of August. Now that she has the data, she can never tell herself that she doesn't have time to enjoy books. Your challenge for this week, don't have time to read? Track how many books you read each quarter. Don't have time to write a book. Track the number of words you type each day. Don't have time to learn a new language. Track how many new words you understand each month. Trying to grow your email list. Track how many people respond to each of your marketing efforts. Want an engaged email list? Track your open rate month over month. If you want something to change, track your progress. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, onto this week's interview. Today's guest helps companies stop wasting time chasing leads and instead attract only their ideal customers. For most of his career, he was one of the most sought-after portrait photographers in the United States. Today, he coaches his clients on how to make people feel seen, heard, and understood like a photographer sees their subject. He's a brand message consultant, a TEDx speaker, host of the very popular Creative Warriors podcast with over 1 million downloads, and best-selling author of Lingo. Discover your ideal customer's secret language and make your business irresistible. Please join me in welcoming Jeffrey Shaw. Hey, Robbie. I'm so psyched to be here with you, as Jeffrey, always. Jeffrey, ah, so thank you so much for joining us from your place in Miami, Florida. Um, as you know, this is a show about building great networks. The context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? So leadership to me is, is defined by impact. And I actually refer to it often leadership as the responsibility of impact, because I think it can go both ways, right? So you have to take responsibility for your positive impact, which honestly, Robbie, that was the hardest thing for me. When I first became aware that people were following me, <laughs> that's when life got scary, right? So I realized, man, there's a real responsibility for making a positive impact in people's lives. And guess what? You've created a positive impact. You now have to take responsibility for it and, and be the, the right leader that shows up for them. And on the other side, you also have to take responsibility for a negative impact. You have to take response, which honestly, we don't see enough 
of in today's world, but you need to take responsibility for what you cause negatively. So um, I've always looked at the correlation between between impact and, and leadership, and, and that that's what holds me on the line of leadership. When I realized it, and when I realized that I could be a leader, um, I was in a, a year-long leadership program back in 2014, and we had to do this particular leadership exercise at a rope course. Now, mind you, there had been previously, and I guess I should preface it by saying I'm petrified of heights, or so I thought, right? I've, I've kind of out-trained myself, but I had always identified as being petrified of heights. And we had done a few previous exercises, which, you know, I succeeded at to a degree. But all of a sudden, we were given this task on our rope, which involved Gosh, it involved making your way at a very, very high height across the cable while there was a cable hanging above us because there were two of us on the cable, uh, which had a periodically had a rope hanging. So you would kind of hang on to a rope to support yourself, but that rope would run at a distance before you could grab the next one. So there was a period of time where you were only standing on a cable. Now you're, you're bullied, you're strapped in, so you're not going to fall to your death, but your brain doesn't know that when you're, <laughs> when you're at that kind of height. Well, my partner fell off the cable right away. So now I'm up there alone. And there was a goal to get to the other side. And I was going across this cable with the goal to get the other side, feeling like I usually do in life. Like I need to be a good boy. I need to do my job. I need to do the, I need to reach the goal. And I got about halfway across, across and that cable was swinging. And I know this is a G-rated show, so I'm going to keep it G-rated. But I screamed a profanity that is so out of my character. Something else took over my body. And it was with such conviction, I just marched my way across that cable we had an opportunity to look at back on, on video later on, and I'd swear, Robbie, that cable stopped shaking when I just stepped into this place of commitment. And what the different, when I realized as a leader is when I, in that moment, I realized that I had the ability to, 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 to put, include myself in the equation because I had always, in leadership prior to me, prior to then, leadership to me meant meeting somebody else's expectations. Leadership meant doing what I was supposed to do. In that moment, I dropped into pure sense of leadership from a mission. And that it was also about me, that I was never going to be a good leader unless I was also included in the equation of being a leader. That it had to mean something to me as well. And then I marched across that cable. And, I, and that, from that day on, I was like, yep, I'm a leader. I was done. Okay, you're such a vivid storyteller, Jeffrey. I'm like a little shaken by the idea of being up there right now because like I actually have never done a ropes course. And I feel like now that I've said it out loud, the universe is going to like invite me to do one. Um, I've yet to do one. Uh, I, I don't mind heights. Like I could stand on top of like a house as long as there's no one else up there with me. I don't trust other people on heights and I don't like heights that move. <laughs> so, so like here, here's the biggest, and I still dislike heights and I don't know, I don't know, I won't commit to never, but I don't know that I'll ever skydive. But here's the thing I learned that changed my life is that I still don't like heights, but I love the fall. And I had no idea. It wasn't until I was doing these crazy rope course exercises being forced to, and that I realized, wow, when I fell off that task, I love the fall. 
there was something incredibly freeing. So I actually think I would enjoy skydiving. I think I'd love the fall of it, but the journey up there, I think would just terrify me. And, it, and that, that point of, of jumping, but I've, I have since zip lined numerous times. Um, I've done what are called free fall zip lines where you, you literally are free falling. You're attached to a cable, but it's, it's a loose cable. So you free fall until you hit a point of tension and then you're zipping. Uh, wow. I, that's the crazy thing. Like I still hate heights, but I've learned I love to fall. <laughs> so, Jeffrey, this is so fascinating. I feel like I could put you on a couch and try to like, you know, f- figure out how Analyze. your brain works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, all right. I want to backtrack for a second because I love this piece about being responsible for impact. And I, I thought it was really interesting that you started by talking about how how hard it is sometimes to be responsible for a positive impact, which some people probably wouldn't stop to think that way. But when you suddenly realize, like, wait, people are noticing me. I wait. I have to. I have to really do this now. I have to make sure that I'm. I'm standing up for what I said I was going to stand up for. I'm going to follow through with what I said I was going to follow through for. People are looking for me to take action and be decisive and commit. You know, and they're looking at me for leadership. It's like that. That's a really profound moment in your life. And then, of course, we all have to have to think about the the negative impacts of actions that happen under us. And um, this ropes course moment, my gosh, when you're, you're stepping into it. So I, I, I want to like roll us back a little bit. So I want to know what kind of kid you are on the playground. <laughs> so I, I got to meet you like later in life, right? You're an established professional. Uh, you had this like incredible career before you had now a new incredible career. Were you even back then, like you've always had this creative side Were you even like, was that more who you were? Were you not seeking out formal leadership roles back then, but you were sort of content to sort of do your thing? Like, how, how, how did you show up in the world? So, yeah, it's such a great question because how I showed up and probably what was going on for me inside were two different things. I, how I showed up in the world was a terrified, petrified, reclusive kid. So I was never on the playground. I, I would do everything I could to avoid this situation. Um, all through high school, I, I had to get permission to graduate because I was like 16 credits behind on gym class because I never went to gym class. And, but I excelled, I excelled in photography. So the school gave me a, a pass on being able to graduate without the required gym classes because I was petrified of gym, petrified of the experience of it. Um, I, you know, darkroom was comforting. So I was a kid, I wasn't on the playground. I avoided confrontation. That does not necessarily mean that leadership wasn't brewing in me. And one thing I had asked other people that I deemed to be successful is I asked them, if you strip away all the socialized notions of humbleness, did you always know there was something special about you? And Every person I've ever asked that to, asking of people that, that again, I can see they are successful, they, they will almost put their head down and say, yes, I've always known. It's so interesting to me, but I have to qualify, but they have to put away their humbleness. And I will tell you that while I was showing up in that world that way, I knew I was going to be a leader. I felt like I had just a, a whisper in my ear, whatever that means to how people want to, whatever they want to project on that. But I felt like I had a whisper in my ear from being a very young kid that, your job is to take this soul on a hell of a ride. And I didn't know what that ride was going to look like, but I knew I would do it. I just knew that I had to just work my way through and to be comfortable in the world. So I think leadership was developing in me at a very, very young age. I felt like I could rule the world, but I didn't show up that way at all. And 
you know, I read your book, Lingo, which I will put a link in the show notes. It's an incredible book. I love the way you wrote it too. I mean, you're a great storyteller, clearly. But in that, you you talk about the origins of, of your photography business and the very humble beginning that you had in life. And so I want to sort of match that for the audience who are listening. You know, like you're this like quiet, shy kid who doesn't want to be seen. You find this art form that is really enticing because you can do it by yourself and you're good at it. And is that it? Like you are like, this is what I'm going to do with my life. And then you're like, oh, now I have to make a business out of it. Like, how, did you have any other, was there any other plan other than photography at first? You know, I, I wanted to be Mike Brady. So I wanted to be an architect. So there was that. <laughs> but I, I just, I didn't grow up. I grew up in an environment that didn't, I mean, nobody ever talked about college. I don't even think my guidance counselor talked about college. And, and no one, my, my son is the first person in my family to go to college. Um, my oldest and, you know, my, my you know, other kids have, have as well. Um, but you know, it wasn't even a conversation. So I had, I had no direction. I really didn't for somebody who has so much direction today. I had zero direction, even as a teenager photography to me was purely a way to escape back. That was back in the film days. So we had dark rooms, right? So that's how I was able, able to avoid gym class. How I was avoid to, able to avoid interacting with people. And also the camera itself, as I went about the world and, and photographed, when at the time I was more interested in, in fine art and graphics and, uh, but I would, so it was more street photography, but there's always this box between me and my in the world. So I felt safe behind the box. And of course, cameras then were much bigger than they are today. So it was a substantial box. Um, that, that's how I found safety. So when I went off to photography school, I had taken a year off after high school because I was that lost. I had no direction. So I took a year off and um, wound up going to really just, it was a 10 month photography course. <laughs> it's hardly, you can't call it college. I mean, kind of a trade school, but it was 10 months and that's it. That was the extent of my education, but it was, I gained enough confidence in that experience. And it's not, that's the, it was in that, that time period that I kind of found myself um, I was living alone. We didn't have, it was a school that didn't have dorms. So we had to live in apartments and I chose to live alone. Everybody else had roommates. Again, don't, didn't like people enough to even want to room with somebody. So I had my own apartment and, um, but I found myself that year and I found confidence to the extent that by the end of the year, I was, I not only won all the top awards, uh, by my, my skill set, but I was also nominated by the, everybody else in the school to be the speaker at graduation. And now here I am going from choosing a profession to now I'm standing up in front of, you know, all the students and all the parents and making my first ever public speech. <laughs> wow. I mean, okay. I have, I have like goosebumps listening to this because, I mean, it feels like a movie because, <laughs> you know, you, well, you really, you went from nobody knowing you, nobody knowing you to your class this voting. Was, it was the ultimate like, irony, right? The ultimate yeah. irony was I chose a profession to hide and I right. wound up being good enough at it that people threw me in the spotlight. And it's like, well, this didn't work out as planned. <laughs> I mean, I literally remember feeling that way. It's like, well, this didn't work out as planned, but that's responsibility of impact. I realized that was, I guess, the beginning of realizing that I had a responsibility to do something with this talent. I had a responsibility to do something with the fact that all these other people that I didn't, was, didn't even know they knew my name chose me to be the student representative. And that, I guess, you know, and having really thought about it before, I think was the beginning of my realizing what it means to take responsibility for leadership. It would have been 
I can't even express the layers of wrongness that it would have been for me to not do something with what I had been given at that point, with what people had had, had, had expressed to me that I had, a, I had an obligation to do something with my life. So, so not only did you do something, but again, coming from a, a, a childhood where college wasn't a given, where you probably didn't have connections to people of wealth, you end up becoming a portrait, portrait photographer for very affluent families. Why was that your ideal customer? I mean, other than the fact that clearly they have money, but like a lot of times you look around and well, who can I have access to? Who, you know, how, how do you sort of like go from, from like shy and not wanting to stand in front of people to, okay, I'm going to network my way in to like meet these people. <laughs> So better yet, how do you go from being a photographer who grew up and owned a business in a place called Hopewell Junction? <laughs> literally, I always tell people, you want to know everything about my childhood. I literally grew up in a place called Hopewell Junction. We called Hopeless Junction. Like, I mean, there's just, it's a reach. So, you know, first of all, I, you're absolutely right. It had really had nothing to do with money, really, because I couldn't, I could not have identified what it meant to have a lot of money at that time. I mean, if you had asked me, I mean, I think I would have said, I, I guess, you know, in the eighties, making six figures was a big thing. Like I would have said, that's the biggest reach in life, right? So if I had to identify what it meant to be wealthy, I probably would have said, well, how people that make six figures. And I don't know that I even aspired to that. So I couldn't even have identified how wealthy the people would ha- that are that, that I work with. So um, for me, it was about an alignment of values and that's when I realized that th- those are the people that I was meant to serve, literally meant to serve because it was, I got them and I felt like they would understand me. There was an alignment of values. Those very same values that made me feel like a black sheep in the town I was growing up in because I was always the one that I took life serious, you know, and other people around me didn't, you know, everybody else is just partying, horsing around or whatever, um, you know, as you did in the country go off, hide in the woods and get drunk into a stupor. And I'm like, none of that was, I was like, can't we do something with our lives? You know, I was, you know, so I was always serious. I was also a very long-term planner. Like I've had life insurance since 19 years old. Like for some reason it made sense to me, you should have life insurance. (laughs) So I've always had life insurance. Um, I've always preserved things thinking, you know, I was the kid that was making time capsules and burying them in the earth thinking someday somebody's going to find this and this is going to be important. And what I realized is that it needed to be, I needed to work with people that had discretionary income because you can only plan for the future if you have the money to do so. And I grew up in an area where, you know, we didn't know if we were paying the bills or putting food on the table that month, right? So it's not possible. So that's when I realized I needed, I was literally meant to serve affluent people. And it really had nothing to do with the money. It's because I felt like I got them. I felt like, their discretionary income allowed them to plan for the future. And that was a huge value to me. And it has everything to me with being a photographer, preserving those moments, having photographs to hand down generation to generation. So, and they welcomed me. I mean, that's the crazy thing. I mean, I've just never, uh, that's the power I think of people knowing your authenticity and where you're coming from. They, my clients, I don't think there's no way any of them ever felt I was after them for their money. There's no way because they gave me the codes to their houses to go into when they're on vacations. And the level of trust was so extreme that they could, I could only have gained that if they saw my, my heart. Um, so yeah, it's, that's how I ended up there. 
So there's a great story of uh, you learning the lingo of these affluent families. And the reason you, I, I, part of what you were just getting at is because they were willing to pay for like, you know, really nice portraits, the kind that you would pass from, you know, one generation to another, which not everyone is going to invest in. And so, and that was what you were called to do, but you need to understand them. And so there's this moment where you're in a department store and you're, you have to buy, you were like, I'm going to buy something. I'm going to watch it get gift wrapped. Can you just share that? Yeah. that, that like, how did you decide that that was how you were going to learn? And what did you learn in that moment? Yeah. So, um, gosh, I, I actually felt like I learned, I refer to it as the secret to success um, in that moment. So, yeah. So I went to Bergdorf Goodman, which is a one of a kind exclusive department store in, in the world. There's only one of them. So um, it's in New York City. I had $20 to spend. That's all I had. I'd been in business for three years at that point and only had 20 bucks to spare. So um, I went there to buy the only thing I could find, which was a, a really small votive candle, just the wax, no, can- no pretty case or anything, like just the thing you'd put in a case. And um, just something told me to have it gift wrapped that, you know, as I looked around at this store that is so exceptional, I realized, well, a lot of it has to do with how things look. Right? presentation was going to matter. So I asked for it to be gift wrapped. And the, the saleswoman literally escorted me over to gift wrap again, which I had never happened. I mean, you shopped at Kmart, like, you know, I don't even think Kmart had gift wrapping, but if they did, you certainly wouldn't be escorted. Right. So she escorts me over, introduces me to the woman at gift wrap. And I asked her to show me how to gift wrap this. I was very transparent with her because I felt like I could relate to her, right? She was, she was the woman behind the wall in the gift wrap department. If there was anybody in this store that I could relate to, I was hoping it would be her. So I said to her, you know, can you help me? I'm trying to learn what rich people like. Can you show me how to wrap this? So she actually brought me into the back room and, and this is when everything changed for me. She wrapped this candle in wads of tissue paper. And it was just, it was an exceptional amount of tissue paper. And then she went to go place it in, in this silver metallic box, which is clearly their signature box. And it was a beautiful box and big, much bigger than the candle. So the whole thing looks bigger and more important now. And as she goes to put it in the box, she stopped with the most dramatic pause, looked up at me and she said, don't use any tape. And that was just such a puzzling thing for me that I, I, I asked her, like, why can't I use any tape? She went on to explain that the person buying this is going to um, give it as a gift. And before they give it as a gift, this clientele, meaning the wealthy people, are extremely particular. She said, so they're going to untie the ribbon, take off the box top, fold back the tissue, make sure the candle's in perfect shape, refold the tissue, put the box tap back on, and then retie the ribbon. And that's why you can't use tape. Because if you use tape, something would tear along the way. And that changed my life, everything for me. I was like, wow, this is, this is understanding people at an extreme level that I didn't know existed in business. But it does exist. And I started realizing, I mean, much, you know, as I, I so what I did is I set out for three months to have that experience or similar experiences as often as I could. I gave myself a three-month deadline. And at the end of the three months, I would close my existing photography business in Hopewell Junction and relaunch myself in Connecticut, where I heard there was people with money. That's literally all I knew. I heard there were people with money in Connecticut. I'm like, all right, I'll find people there. And as so I gave myself a three-month deadline, 
because I knew it was a do or die moment, right? I was financially running out of money. There was just, I mean, how much, how much longer do you go on? It had been three years. How much longer do you go on before you throw it in, throw in, throw in the towel? So I gave myself three months to fix this. So I had every other experience like that I could. I hung out at Ralph Lauren's flagship store on Fifth Avenue uh, or Madison Avenue. I went to, Les, I, what little money I was able to drum up and make from business, I, I went, had dinner at Le Cirque uh, to experience that. If that's, maybe that's where these people dine. What does it feel like? So it really became a study for me to figure out what does life feel like, look like, um, if you're that person, so that I could recreate a business that made them feel seen, heard, and understood. And I showed up in their lives representing that. And within literally within a year, what, you know, it wasn't huge, but the business I had uh, multiplied five times over. And I now was very comfortable for what I needed at that point in life at 23 years, I was, I was comfortable. And then it just progressed from there. Incredible. 20, so in the early 20s, making these decisions to try it, to give yourself these, these several months to like figure it out. I mean, I'm so glad you shared that story. I often, I work hard to not have people share the story that I'm sure they've shared everyone else, everywhere else. But I can't, I don't remember when I read your book. It's been a while now, but that story like sticks out so profoundly to me. And I think that we all can look for those moments, right? Of like the people we're working with, like what's their universe like and how can we better relate to them? And I just want to add to that, like, honestly, because I look at that all the time. It's like, what the, what the heck made me do that at 23 years old? I mean, sometimes I'm amazed that I had the instinct. Um, and that is where being an introvert and being shy paid off, right? I didn't, it never occurred to me to look outside of myself to solve this problem because I was so used to turning within myself to solve my problems. <laughs> so I, I just turned to Jeff, you got to figure this out. And this is the only way I thought I could figure it out. It never occurred to me to turn to anybody else. So I've known you for a few years now and photography is no longer the main part of your life. I imagine you still dabble in it because it's your passion, but you have transformed yourself again on many levels. One of which, like, you know, you and I had this conversation when you moved um, from like one part of Florida to the other, not very far. And you were like talking about how you're going to reestablish yourself. And next thing you know, you started having people over your house all the time to the point where it became a weekly gathering. So this is like a bookend from the earlier point where you were saying how you didn't want to be seen or heard or anyone, have anyone know who you were. And now you're getting on stages to speak and you're inviting people into your home and it became this whole thing. What, what was that transformation like? What, you know, what do you think led to you saying, I want to be not just behind the camera, which is safe. I want to be seen. I'm going to write. I'm going to speak. I'm going to, put, I'm going to host an incredibly popular podcast. Um, I'm going to step into leadership in a bigger way. Like what led to that kind of transformation? Um, honestly, everything that I have done since 2009 comes down to one moment. And that moment was when I was in coach training. Now I had, I had decided to take a six, six month uh, coach training program. Um, you know, I think it was actually 2008 uh, because the economy tanked and rich people were greatly affected. So I was like, eh, I'm going to have time on my hands. Like it wasn't, I knew I was okay financially and you know, I, none of us knew how long that recession would go on, but I was less worried about that and more just looking at it as I would have time on my hands. So I've always, I had always been intrigued by personal development always when I was that, that same shy kid 
that I described. I was buying Wayne Dwyer books and I was buying all those health, self-help books with my allowance and then hiding them in my house because I didn't want my family to know I was reading them because they would just think I was weird. So I'd always loved personal development. So I decided to take the six-month coaching program. And there was a point in the program towards the end of the six months that uh, the, the very famous poem by Marianne Williamson was read, Our Deepest Fear. And I don't know if you're, are you familiar with the poem? All right. So um, I could almost recite it, but I'm not going to. But there's a line in the poem where uh, the poem says, you're playing it small doesn't serve the world. And that hit me, Robbie, like a ton of bricks. For the first time in my life, I had realized for me, and this isn't true for everybody, but I realized for me that my shyness, my stories, my introversion was selfish. It had never occurred to me. I mean, again, that's not true for everybody because for a lot of people, shyness or whatever might be your, your only survival technique. So I don't want to take that away from anybody. But for me, I realized it's just a story in my head it's, it's an excuse for me not doing anything with my life and I'm done with it. And literally it was that moment. And that moment changed everything for me because I, I'm trying, I almost immediately, I mean, there was immediate action. Like I immediately reached out to the photographer, the professional photographers of America and let them know that I wanted to speak at their conference. Right. I, I took immediate action to put myself out there in the world as a speaker. And by 2009 and ever since, I mean, I started in the photo industry. I started speaking on stages in 2009 because the commitment I made to myself after hearing that one line on a, in a poem. Wow. Wow. And you've done incredible. At what point did you decide that you were going to actually make speaking and coaching the, the main focus of your work? Yeah. Well, you know, as what happens, I mean, once I had the coaching bug in me, there was just no turning back. And I still had a thriving photography business. And thankfully that could fund my other endeavors. Um, so, but I was definitely starting to pull back. So it's really been since 2010. I mean, I've been pulling back, doing less and less photography and I'll do very little this year just for the clients that I just can't say no to yet. Um, more because I'm, I'm in love with their kids usually. Like it's the kids I really, really love. <laughs> so I'm not ready to say no yet. But um, so I've been pulling back since 2010 and just keep adding more space in my life to do more coaching. And then originally it was just speaking in the photo industry. It really wasn't until remarkably... So Lingo came out in January of 2018. Um, I did my first paid speaking gig outside of the photo industry in September of 2018. And I have to constantly remind myself of that because I get so, you know, I can easily get down on myself and discouraged feeling like I'm not progressing as a speaker as fast as I would have liked to. And I realize as of right now we're recording this, I, it's even yet to be two years that anybody outside the photo industry even knew, knows I existed. The funny thing was the first time I spoke at the national, the, the conference of uh, the professional photographers of America, it's, it's like 12,000 people attend that conference. The first time I spoke there, I had made myself known to the organization, but they also realized that nobody in the industry knew who I was. I had one of the most successful photography businesses in the industry and no one knew I existed. So they agreed to put me on the stage, but we had to have a six-month campaign to get people to know who I was in order for them to show up in the room. Wow. So for six months, they put <laughs> me on webinars. They publicized me in social media. Like They were literally helping me build a name in an industry that I had been in for 25 years at that point, and nobody knew who I was. 
and we had to figure out how we're going to get butts in the seats. They knew I was, they knew I was legit, but we knew that nobody would show up because nobody knew my name. That, that's there's, there's like so oxymoronic. It makes my I, brain hurt a little bit. <laughs> but I know you, my whole but life it makes is, sense. Yeah. It's who yeah. you were. You were. I am who I am. I'm do the work that I know how to do. I, I you know, you were very self sufficient. You know, but but now, I mean, you think about your network differently. I feel like you've made real shifts in that. Um, and you and I have had some conversations about this over the years. So I always ask people. You know, you have sort of your inner circle of friends you know, colleagues, people that you, you don't have to think about it because you know you're going to see them. And if you don't see them for a while, it's okay because you'll just pick up again. But then you have sort of like second and third layers out, the people that maybe you see annually at a conference or you work with five years ago or just people you like, but you don't have a reason to see them all the time. How do you nurture and sustain sort of your wider network? What are, what are some practices or habits or philosophies you have around that? I love that you're asking that because I'm trying to, I've become a lot more conscious of that, right? I've, um, right when the, when the pandemic hit, I felt very prepared for that situation. Unlike previous crises, like when, you know, 9-11 was, you know, unexpected and I was not prepared. I had just, I had literally the year before just bought like the house, right? The house that in Connecticut, big house in Connecticut was six and a half acres that I thought I was going to live in forever. Wife at the time, kids, the whole deal. And then 9-11. So in this, for whatever reason, in this time with coronavirus, I was in a good place. I didn't know financially how, what this is all going to look like, but I knew emotionally I was in a good place. And it had been kind of my third rodeo. So I was like, all right, I, I've got this. So I immediately took it upon myself to start reaching out to people that, that were in those slightly outer circles, often with the same message. It's like, hey, I've got extra bandwidth. I'm doing really well. How are you? Am I somebody that you can lean on? Right? So I realized that I had capacity and that's really what it came down to. So that's how I look at relationships now because there are times in life we have capacity and there's times that we don't. When I have capacity, I look for opportunities to help somebody else, even if it maxes out my capacity. And I'm very aware of what my boundary is. And I will let people know I don't have the bandwidth right now. But I also have gotten much better at recognizing when I have the bandwidth and when I have capacity. And I will seek out relationships with people to maximize that capacity. Because if I've got it to give, I'm going to find somebody to give it to. And that has been really helpful to me and to, for others, I'd like to think through this whole pandemic because not everybody found themselves in a place of having the capacity. They'd hit them in different ways. Um, so that, that I think will now become a constant for me, like just to look for opportunities. If you've got it to give, look for the opportunity of who you can give it to and just reach out because there are people in that moment that'd be like, I cannot believe you reached out to me. I really need somebody to talk to right now. Yeah. And I mean, the fact that you think of them at all, right? Like it makes them feel so seen, you know, even if you can't do anything for their particular situation, just being checked in on like that, being seen, being, you know, thought of you, I'm reaching out. I mean, it's, it, I've had people do it to me in reverse, right? It's like, it feels really nice when people go, Hey, I haven't seen you in a while. Like what's going on? You seem, I see, it seems like you're doing well, but like you're busy. Like, can we check in? It's been a little while. It's like, it's just that kind of, Hey, and it's also pointing out the value of that, right? I think this is, when I see somebody post on social media that they've lost a family member, I will often reach out and say, I know we're not you know, super close, or I'm not as close as people that you have around you right now, but sometimes we need somebody who's not as close to us 
And I just want to offer myself up as that person for you, right? Because there, there's, you know, sometimes it's hardest to have certain conversations with people who are closest to you. And yet, you know, you're not going to walk up to a stranger, but there's that, there's that, those people in between, just as you're describing them, those people in between that are sometimes the perfect people that you want to reach, uh, reach out to because they're not so close to the situation. And I, and I find in grief that to be very much the case because when someone's lost somebody, their whole family is mourning that, right? So I offer myself up as the person just one step removed so that I can just be there for them. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's something we all need to be thinking about because I think it's getting harder. This is like a really challenging time to be in mourning um, and to honor, to honor people who have passed and to be in community at all, at any kind of way. Um, you know, speaking of community though, to take us to a slightly lighter note, a fluffier note, even um, <laughs> well, this waffle Sunday thing became a thing <laughs> and I am still jealous that I've never been to one. <laughs> When you um, said waffle, you said fluffy. I was like, oh, this is either going to involve waffles or my dog. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. So I'm just really wondering, how did Waffle Sundays become such a uh, big thing? To the point where you actually had it in the, the bio that you sent me, it mm-hmm. mentioned Waffle Sundays. So tell I, me about this Because it's out of control. Like I realized, you know, it's been with some of the, some of the greatest lessons in life have come from waffles for me because, and the big lesson is, Man, you can work so hard on what you think is the most important work for you to do, and then you can do something else that's so natural to who you are that it actually takes off. And that, to me, is the lesson from waffles. Like I, I've said to my son, I am convinced I'm going to end up on the Tonight Show having something to do with waffles. Like it will have nothing to do with what I'm, I'm killing myself to to make the impact I'm trying to make as a leader in the world. It's going to have something to do with waffles. And that's okay with me. It's coming to terms with it. It's like responsibility for impact. It's like coming to terms with that. I don't know that I understand it fully. I actually, I had kicked around the idea of having a podcast, an additional podcast called Waffles with Jeffrey. And so I recorded episode one, which we recorded as a group. I figured eventually it would look more like, you know, uh, one-on-one conversations over waffles. But I wanted episode one to be recorded as a group, a group that was already gathered at my, my apartment. So I asked them, why, why do you all show up? Like, I really wanted to know. It's like, what is it about waffles that like people like you are like, I'm jealous. I've never come. I'm like, it's just waffles. I, so I, I posed the question and it was such a beautiful range of answers. People answered everything from there's something about waffles that conjures up childhood memories to what a couple of people said, it's the factor in your home. We can go get waffles anywhere. We can go have brunch anywhere, but the fact that it's in your home. And then once people have come and experienced the, the whole experience, they keep coming because it's just, it's, I literally lay back, like I'm, I'm making the waffles. So I'll, I'll, I'm in the kitchen, which is, you know, open to the living room, but it's what's, it's what's going on for everybody else. I cannot tell you how many times I've just sat back from my kitchen and I'm looking out at everybody else interacting with a tear in my eye and thinking, this is the most beautiful thing ever. Like, it's just waffles. People have gathered for waffles and now they're introducing them. So they're meeting each other. Here in Miami, you've got all languages being spoken and people are figuring it out and they're out on the terrace. It's just, it's crazy. And it has taken on a life of its own. Uh, we, of course, have been you know, not able to do Waffle Sundays through the lockdown, um, but I'm giving some serious thought to when we can to be able to kick it off in a big way of having what I, w- I would call waffles on the water and, and chartering a, a, a yacht. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. Put me down for this. <laughs> exactly. And you know, and, and the problem is getting a boat big enough that is actually within any reason of, of paying for. But I mean, that's to the degree that it's just, there's something magical that, that happens. And it, it has to do with just the hominess. Um, when I started it, I think it was when I, you and I had a conversation about this. I had been living in Miami beach and I was moving to downtown Miami and all Northerners don't know that that's two entirely different cities. Like, you know, people think Miami Beach is the beach of Miami. It's not. It's an entirely different city. We're 20 minutes apart. So I was moving downtown and knew no one. And uh, with your encouragement, I was like, well, what do I do about that? Right? So I had, I invited two people over for waffles. Those two people told other people. And now typically we'll have, I'd say 16 to 20 people for waffles. And we've maxed out at 36. That was the biggest one. Uh, I had to rent tables for 36 people because I didn't have enough tables for waffles. I also learned from from um, uh, kind of looking in on uh, on what you're doing that when you make the waffles, you stack them like a, a deck of cards, like a house of cards. <laughs> yes. So they don't get all soggy. See, look, look, Correct. I'm paying attention. I'm, I'm <laughs> taking are. note. That's how you get them crispy on the outside. You stack them like a deck of cards. <laughs> yeah, it's so great. So house of cards. So I'm glad that I had some little part in encouraging you to start inviting people to, to you know, obviously people were so drawn in to see what was happening in your home. And now they feel like they can be part of that community you're building. Now, you, like that's been my thing all along. It's like hosting is so powerful. And that's what you're doing. You know, you're inviting people into a space. You're creating a container for this experience and people crave those those moments and you know now I've, I've been sort of focusing on doing that online um so i i just looked back and realized my first weekly virtual happy hour was march 13th like okay actually the yeah. day everything stopped yeah wow <laughs> so and it's been uh, that many months i mean right i know and i'm like wow and, and it's now a weekly thing i'm never i'm not i have no plans to stop it's just a thing i do every friday at five o'clock eastern like virtual happy hour with me. I teach a little thing. We do some breakout rooms. You learn something. You meet a lot of good people. And over 400 people as of this moment have signed up uh, for the series. And we get like 50 people every time. It's amazing. But so, so you said something that's really important. I, I just want to point out is you are a natural host. And you know, when people, people have asked me like, what, you know, what, why just start the podcast? I was actually in that leadership program in 2014. We were part of the assignment was to take on a challenge. And I took on the personal challenge of being a host because prior to then I'd only been the guest. I was always a guest as the photographer in people's homes. I was always the guest on a stage speaking. What I didn't know, whether I honestly, Robbie, I didn't know if people would show up if I was a host because I realized it was affecting my, my confidence and my self-esteem. It's like, you know, being a professional guest kind of feels after a while like you're just pushing yourself on people. Like you're the person always showing up. I'm always the one asking for the bathroom. But I wondered, did, I, did people see me as a, a valuable enough that, hey, I'm here. Do you want to come to me? That's why I started the podcast. I had no expectations for it to exist six years later. Um, it was really just a personal challenge. Would people say yes to being a guest? Would people say yes to showing up and listening? So whereas you're a natural host, being, you know, as a reclusive as I was, I never, it never occurred to me to be a host. I have literally learned to become a host through the podcast, through hosting Waffle Sundays, um, having private events at my home and such. Being a host was never a first instinct for me at all. And it's had such a 
such an amazing impact for your life though, as you've taken it on and, and you're a great host. And like falling, like learning, finding out you like falling. I found out I like hosting. It's (laughs) actually really fun. So my favorite wrap up question here is if we were reconnecting a year from now, and I know we'll stay in touch, but let's say we're, we're connecting on the anniversary of this moment and we're um, talking about all of your successes in the previous year. What are we going to be celebrating? What are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? Oh, you know, we are going to be celebrating that I'm helping the biggest, or I should say I'm having the biggest impact on the community of people that I care most about in this world. And that is self-employed people. Uh, I didn't realize that until March, uh, February, March, when the pandemic hit, um, that's when I gained clarity. I was just beginning the second book. And that's when I gained absolute clarity that this is who I am for. Like I've always thought I was for entrepreneurs or I thought I was for this group of people. And I realized at the end of the day, I am for the self-employed because that's my only, it's the only journey I've ever known. And I, and the the personal development journey of being self-employed is unmatched, unmatched. And it's such an incredible, and I realize no one talks about it. Nobody has produced a book that gives you the full spectrum of being self-employed. Every book on Amazon about self-employed is about taxes for self-employed or you know, how, to hit, how to hit six figures in self-employed. Nobody talks about the pains, the celebrations, what's needed, the growth. Nobody talks about the mindsets. So that's the book I'm writing. It'll be out next May. And I really think this is a game-changing book for me because of how pure it, it just sits in my soul. Like I, I, it just, Nothing has ever felt so purely sank in the deepest part of my gut as the need for me to write this book for self-employed people and it'll be out next May. So a year from now, we should be celebrating the impact that that book is, is going to have. Wow. I can't wait to celebrate that with you, Jeffrey. That's great. So come for waffles. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to do a waffle book ah. uh, book launch, by the way. So. That'll be another, another book. <laughs> How could people find you and follow your work? Uh, so uh, jeffreyshaw.com is kind of the, the epicenter. So uh, at jeffreyshaw.com, you'll find Lingo, you'll find the podcast. Uh, we're actually just, it'll be relaunching. So it's, you know, what's there now is, is sufficient, but we're relaunching it in a couple months. Um, but that's kind of uh, the, the best place to go, jeffreyshaw.com. Fantastic. We'll have that link and also links to your LinkedIn, your Twitter, and your book, Lingo. Um, and they'll all be at uh, ontheschmooze.com. Thank you, Jeff, so much for joining us. Well, it's, it's great to have this conversation with you in a way that we don't get to when we see each other for business purposes, right? So I really appreciate you, Robbie. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jeffrey. Such a pleasure to speak with him and learn about his leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something to put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 206. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources in today's show, as well as over 200 archived episodes on this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which are your favorite interviews. And do you wish you had more confidence when you were presenting via Zoom? I'm doing a listening tour right now, and I'm meeting with dozens of presenters who are all keenly interested in upping their Zoom game. If this interests you and resonates, I would love to chat about 20 minutes to learn about your experience presenting on Zoom and what you have found challenging. It would be great to get your insight. These calls are helping me design a stronger certification program. Send an email to Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com and we'll schedule a Zoom chat. 
Now, speaking of a certification program, if you are already you know, ready to take Zoom to the next level, you should probably check out the 5% Advantage program. It's a four-week certification program that helps presenters grow in their confidence with Zoom, online facilitation, and virtual event design so they can reduce their tech angst and host more engaging online experiences. Learn more and get added to the waitlist for the September cohort at the5percentageadvantage.com. That's the number five percent spelled out advantage.com the five percent advantage.com and if you enjoyed this episode with jeffrey please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show remember subscribing is always free are you a fan that's awesome i'd love to read your review in apple podcasts it's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com Thank you in advance. I look forward to connecting again next week. We'll be interviewing another talent professional who has achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an awesome week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's on the schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.